everyone, welcome to another episode of Treating You, presented to you by Bart's Health. This is the podcast that gives a voice to our 18,000 staff, shines a light on their day-to-day working lives, and show you, the public, some of their amazing stories and experiences. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I work in the communications team here at Bart's Health. In this podcast, we chat to the people who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients, everyone from porters and therapists to midwives, doctors, and ward clerks. We discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey and how they treat you. Dr. Frankie, welcome to Treating You. Thank you for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule of influencing and juggling multiple lives at once to chat to me. How are you getting on? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. No problem. We've got a lot to talk about, so I want to just dive in straight away. Can you first tell me briefly how and why you got into healthcare, your journey into Bart's Health and St. Bartholomew's, and then this social media platform you've built for yourself? Yeah, so that's a hefty journey. So I've always been interested in healthcare and that was very much my career path from school. But through medical school, I became interested in research and I got involved in a lot of academic projects. And I was also very interested in health and fitness and living a healthy life because it's very easy to not do that as a medical student. So I got into learning more about nutrition and exercise and I actually did my personal training qualifications whilst at university and worked as a PT to help fund my degree. As that grew, I started putting my research skills to use and learning more about the science behind exercise and healthy living and things. And then social media came about and I noticed how many myths and misconceptions were floating around on social Mm. media and how many people are giving unqualified health advice. So as I graduated and became a doctor, I then decided to step into the space and produce evidence-based health content. And that kind of grew because through working as a doctor, you know, I might see 20 patients in clinic in a day, but through social media, I can access and provide good information that's backed by true evidence for many more people, sometimes thousands. So it's kind of all grown quite organically and yeah I really enjoy it I think that more and more people are turning to social media for health advice and if I can be a voice of someone who is educated to fill those gaps and bust the myths then I feel like I have a bit of a duty to do so. For sure you obviously balance quite a lot there and I'm sure it can be pretty exhausting so how do you manage it and have a semblance of healthy work-life balance for not just your well-being but I guess your sanity as well? Well, I think that it stems from a genuine interest. And I think when you are passionate about multiple things and you have multiple priorities, it's a lot easier to fit it in. You know, I genuinely like exercising, so I find it quite easy to fit that into my day. I'm genuinely interested in the topics I'm talking about. So I'm often reading the research about those topics anyway. So to put that content out on social media and share it with others in a digestible way is not a huge chore for me. Of course, it does come with a lot of work, the behind the scenes side of social media, but it's a genuine hobby and an interest for me. So the reason that you're speaking to me today, Frankie, is we're going to talk about cancer that specifically affects women and females. So the first form we're going to talk about is ovarian cancer. So tell me what it is, how many women are diagnosed, maybe what ages or the average, and how does it present in women differently to say breast cancer or even for males, something like prostate cancer? Yeah, so I'm really passionate about talking about cancers because I actually work within Bart's Trust as a oncology clinical research fellow. That's why I wanted to come on and talk about female cancers. 
So ovarian cancer is cancer of the ovaries, which is part of the female reproductive system. And it's basically where abnormal cells develop in the ovaries and grow uncontrollably and can spread to other parts of the body. And anyone with ovaries can get ovarian cancer. So this can include women, but also trans men, non-binary people, anyone that has ovaries. Women that have had their ovaries removed can't get ovarian cancer. So it's cancer of that part of the body. Around seven and a half thousand women a year are diagnosed with ovarian cancer in England or in the UK. So that makes it the sixth most common cancer in women. And your risk of developing ovarian cancer increases with age. So breast cancer tends to affect younger women. Ovarian cancer is more common with increasing age. So over half of ovarian cancers are seen in women over 65. But it is something to be aware of because these stats are just averages. Of course, younger women can be affected. So I think everyone needs to be aware of these from the get-go and not just think cancer is something that you only get when you're older. I think we all need to be clued up and educated on these topics. Um, so why ovarian cancer is such a dangerous cancer and it does tend to have a fairly poor prognosis is because it prevents in a really vague way. So the symptoms can be quite hard to diagnose because they tend to be quite insidious in onset, quite vague and don't necessarily make people feel really poorly. So for example, one of the most common symptoms is abdominal bloating and feeling full quickly and kind of losing your appetite. Now, most people listening to this podcast have probably experienced those symptoms at some point. Had it last night. <laughs> exactly. Irritable bowel syndrome is the most common condition that overlaps with the symptoms of ovarian cancer. And many of us will feel uncomfortable bloating and have bowel habit changes. And so it's very easy to say, oh, it's probably nothing. So that is why many cases of ovarian cancer are picked up late because the symptoms aren't sort of scary enough to prompt you going to the doctor. That's why it's important to be clued up. So mm. we mentioned feeling full quickly, reduced appetite, abdominal bloating, but also symptoms like abdominal pain that doesn't go away, unexplained weight loss. That's with any cancer, you can lose weight without intending to do so tiredness that's unexplained and also any changes to your bowel or urinating habits so some people may need to urinate more frequently lots of women will experience that symptom as part of a urinary tract infection so the rule tends to be if you experience these symptoms for more than two weeks particularly if you're over the age of 50 then you should go to the gp who will refer on for further investigations quite quickly we both know that things like smoking or alcoholism, poor diet can put you at increased risk of something like lung cancer in the case of the former and heart disease maybe in the case of the latter two. Mm -hmm. So what puts women and females at increased risk of contracting ovarian cancer specifically? So with any cancer, lifestyle factors do play a huge role. We know some cancers more than others, like you mentioned, most cases of lung cancer are linked to smoking. And I really try to educate this through my social media platforms that us living a healthy life, you know, maintaining a healthy body weight, eating a varied balanced diet, not smoking, exercising can overall reduce your cancer risk. But having worked in oncology, I also know that many cancers develop and you can't really do anything about it. And I hate seeing patients sometimes that have this immense guilt. And they say to me, what mm. could I have done differently to prevent this cancer? 
And ovarian cancer is one of them where, yes, lifestyle factors do play a big role, but the main one is increasing age, which we can't stop happening. Can't control that. (laughs) Exactly. Like I mentioned, over half of the cases are in women over 65. Some cases are linked to genetic factors. There's a gene that can increase the risk called the BRCA gene. That's also the breast cancer gene. And that tends to run in families. So if you have someone in your direct family, like your mum or your sister, that has that gene and has developed a cancer, then you may be tested at a younger age. If you've had any other cancers, that can increase your risk. And that is through scientific reasons, but also some of the treatments associated with them. For example, radiotherapy treatment for bowel cancer can increase your risk of ovarian cancer. And then there's also other things like hormonal contraception or hormone replacement therapy, which have been shown to have a slightly increased risk. But the main ones are kind of unpreventable. Let's talk about the other form of cancer, which you wanted to explore, Frankie, which is cervical cancer. Now, I can guess it's cancer of the cervix, literally. But what does that actually mean in practice? And how does it compare to ovarian cancer in its aggression, how it develops and, and how many women it affects? So cervical cancer is completely different, although also is a cancer that affects women. Cervical cancer is cancer of the cervix. So if you were to look at a diagram of the female reproductive tract, you have two ovaries at each side, you have fallopian tubes that go into the womb. At the bottom of the womb is the cervix, which then is the opening to the vagina. Cervical cancer is cancer of the cervix. Now, this is a completely different cancer type to ovarian cancer and the risk factors for developing it and the women it affects are completely different. So cervical cancer also can affect older women, but it can also affect younger women. So you will see women sort of in their 30s, 40s, 50s also getting cervical cancer at higher rates than they would ovarian. Cervical cancer got a lot of awareness when Jade Goody, you know, the big brother star Mm. back in the day, died of cervical cancer and she was very young. And that's why this is a cancer that's so important to talk about. Now, we mentioned with ovarian cancer that there's some risk factors that you can control, but cervical cancer is almost entirely preventable. And that's because we have a vaccine for the HPV virus which stands for the human papillomavirus. And this is responsible for about 99% of cases of cervical cancer. So this is a really devastating cancer type for women that get it. But through increasing education and awareness, we can prevent most cases. I'll chat a little bit about HPV because that's something that's extremely confusing for women and causes a lot of anxiety. So HPV is human papillomavirus. And essentially... Most people who are sexually active will contract this virus at some point in their lives. Oh, wow. (laughs) Although it is transmitted through sexual activity, it's not one of the traditional sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia or gonorrhea. So anyone that's been sexually active is likely to have contracted this virus at some point in their lives. But there's over 200 strains of HPV and some are higher risk than others. So if you were to contract HPV, most people will maybe contract a low risk strain, and are likely to clear it through their own immune system within a couple of years. So most people will catch HPV through sex, and then their natural body immune system will clear it from their body. In some cases, you may contract a high risk form of HPV. The high risk means it's the ones that can cause cancer. 
and your body, your immune system may not be able to clear it. And then over time, having HPV in your body can cause the abnormal cells to develop. And then over a kind of five or 10 year period, that can lead to development of certain cancers, not just cervical cancer, but also some head and neck cancers, anal cancers as well. There's so much to say about HPV. Essentially, that's that's the story about the virus. But from 2006, I think it was, they introduced a vaccination program for girls and boys aged 12 to 13, so year eight of school, to have the vaccination against the most high risk strains of HPV. So it vaccinates against strains 6 and 11, which can cause cervical cancer, but also genital warts. And it also vaccinates against other high-risk strains 16 and 18, which are responsible for over 80% of cervical cancers. So this is why cervical cancer is almost entirely preventable, because we have a vaccination programme, and we also have the NHS Cervical Cancer Screening Programme, which we'll talk about shortly, which is the smear test. And then similar question to the last topic, what are the symptoms of cervical cancer in comparison to ovarian cancer? Are they more or less obvious? So obviously, these are all generalised statements, because some women with ovarian cancer may have no symptoms, or they might have blindingly obvious symptoms. With cervical cancer, in general, it's a little bit easier to diagnose because it causes more scary symptoms. So the most common symptom is vaginal bleeding, and that's unusual for the woman, so not the same as a menstrual period. It may be bleeding after sex, which isn't normal, bleeding in between periods, or bleeding after a woman's already gone through the menopause. So as a woman, if you notice abnormal vaginal bleeding, you will know something's not normal. Whereas in ovarian cancer, having a bit of bloating, we've all been there and it's very easy to dismiss. Some other symptoms of cervical cancer include changes to normal vaginal discharge. So it can look different, be a different colour, different consistency, different smell. Women really get to know their own normal and any deviation from a normal should prompt you to think, maybe I should get this checked out. And then it can also cause pain during sex or just pain in general in the pelvis or lower back. You spoke about it there. So one way women can keep an eye on their physical health in this regard is going for regular smear tests. Now, this is obviously something I have no experience of. So can you tell the listeners how you can get invited to have one and what to make of your results when you get them? Yeah. One of the reasons that cervical cancer is so preventable is because we have the NHS cervical cancer screening program. So women from age 25 to 49, will be invited to have a smear test every three years. And then from age 50 to 64, it's every five years. Now, you don't have to do anything because as you approach your 25th birthday, centrally, you'll receive a letter inviting you to get your first smear test. And this can be done at your local GP service. Now, what's important with the smear test is that even if you've had your HPV vaccination, age 12 to 13, you still must attend your smear test because the vaccination only protects against nine strains of HPV, the most high risk cancer causing nine strains. But I mentioned at the beginning of this, there's nearly 200 strains of HPV. So it's important to still get your smear test. So the smear test results can be a source of anxiety for women. And that is because they kind of changed the way they do a smear test a few years ago. Historically, a smear test would take samples of the cervical cells and test them. Now, we have a HPV test first. 
So when you have your smear test, what they do is they take a little brushing of the cervical lining and they test it for HPV. As I mentioned, HPV causes over 99% of cervical cancers. So on that test, if your HPV is negative, your chances of having cervical cancer are extremely low. So you'll be sent home, you can relax, and then you'll go back to your smear test in three to five years, depending on your age. If you're HPV positive, they'll then go on to test the cells. So HPV itself is responsible for 99% of cervical cancers. But as I mentioned, most people get HPV without any cancer. So having HPV isn't a problem. So they then go and test your cervical cells. If there's any abnormal cells, they will then do further investigations to check for any cancer, which is called a colposcopy. If you're HPV positive, but you have no abnormal cells, then you'll just be invited for a smear test a little earlier in one year's time, rather than the three or five years. What's really important about smear tests is people are so apprehensive, which is understandable, it's not particularly pleasant. But a smear test is not a test for cancer. It's trying to detect any abnormal cells that could potentially develop into cancer. So it's a preventative thing. The cancer journey is that you may get HPV and over a five to 10 year period, abnormal cells may develop and they may turn cancerous. So the intention of the smear test is to pick it up before cancer develops. So it's a preventative thing the chances are you're not going to get a cancer diagnosis from your smear test. So everyone can take a breath of (laughs) relief. Well, that's that's a good thing for the female listeners who are listening to this. As a final question then, Frankie, have there been any steps made towards finding cures for both of these forms of cancer or any positive developments along the way that you can share? So with the cervical cancer, over 99% are preventable. And I think since the vaccination came in, rates have reduced by about 87% or something. Um, I may need to clarify that figure, but a significant, significant reduction. So in terms of cervical cancer, the vaccination program and the smear test uptake are the two quite groundbreaking initiatives that have significantly reduced incidence of cervical cancer and mortality from cervical cancer. Ovarian cancer hasn't quite had the same developments, so we don't have a single test to diagnose ovarian cancer, and the mortality rates are still much worse than cervical cancer, so we still have a lot more work to do on that. There are lots of clinical trials ongoing, including at BART's, looking into new treatments for ovarian cancer, but we haven't quite had that same breakthrough as in cervical cancer. And on that note, Dr. Frankie, thank you so much for coming on Treating You. Thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Treating You and thank you to Frankie for coming on and talking about women's cancer for us. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you find it on, share it on social media and leave us a review and maybe a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch with about any of the issues that we discussed, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or you can visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. Stay safe, look after yourselves and we'll be back soon treat you with another episode.